This is Purple Radio On Demand. Welcome back, guys. Welcome to Female Gaze. Um, this week, we have a very, very exciting guest with us. We have Gabby Logan, a former alumni of Durham and also a fo- former alumni of the College of St. Hild and St. Bede, where me and Lauren are members of. Um, Gabby is a former international gymnast. She started her broadcasting career in radio. She went on to join uh, Sky Sports and became one of the channel's key presenters. Uh, she's covered the World Cup, the Champions League, the Olympics, uh, just to name a few. Uh, she's presented for the BBC uh, for Final Score, Inside Sport and Victor's Games. She's also been a columnist for The Times. She's written for The Guardian um, and The Independent, amongst others. And she's also president of the Muscular Dystrophy Dystrophy trophy uh uk charity and is also a sparks charity ambassador um and yeah welcome welcome thank you so much for joining us gabby it's such a pleasure to have you here um thank you very much for having me no worries we're we're so excited and i know lots of our kind of hildbead listeners will also be very excited as gabby i think is one of the big names when you come to hildbead as our alumni she's <laughs> actually got a picture really near where my room in first year was really? on the wall. there is a picture of you on the wall under our alumni Oh Col- wow! Okay, and does it need yeah. updating? <laughs> I think I think it looks pretty. It's pretty accurate. <laughs> um, but yeah, so one of the the big names to come out of our college in the last few years, and we're we're so excited to be talking to her today. Well, thank you very much, Helen. Um, so I think we'll start with our kind of our question that we ask all of our guests on the podcast, which is: Have you got a woman of the week this week, Gabby? Um, I, I was trying to think of the kind of the big stories of the week and the big, there's, uh, I mean, you know, Naomi uh, Osaka winning uh, the Australian Open. Um, she's probably my sporting uh, woman of the week, maybe. Um, she's, I think she's a fantastic role model and she has taken the kind of platform of using her voice to, to be um, somebody who doesn't shy away from kind of big political issues and big social issues. So she's, she's going to be, I think, a, a really important force for good in the sport in the next 10 years so she's probably my yeah she's the one that stands out I'd say it's my woman of the week that's a great choice I watched her I'm quite a big tennis fan actually and I watched her interview at the end of the um when they were presenting the trophy which I know lots of people have had a, a good joke about because she she did accidentally yeah call a competitor by the wrong name but she she, said, what's your name Jennifer would you prefer to be called Jennifer or Jenny and and Jenny said Jenny and she said okay Jennifer and it was almost yeah. like I don't think she heard her <laughs> it, was, it was a very sweet kind of comical comical moment yeah. I thought but yeah. an amazing amazing game all round and yeah. Chloe have you got have you got a woman of the week I do. Um, I was kind of fishing around seeing what where I could go this week. Um, and what came up was the recent Olympics in Japan. And obviously, we didn't speak about this. I don't think we spoke about this on previous episodes. But um, the previous Olympics minister did come out and he said some slightly tenuous things on women in meetings, uh, something along the lines of, uh, they take too long to talk. And so we need to kind of have an allocated amount of time for women to speak. Otherwise, the the meetings will go on for too long um which was interesting to say the least um but my woman of the week is the woman who has gone on to replace him um that is Seiko Hashimoto um and she is a seven-time Olympic champion she also used to be on the board for uh empowering women in Japan um and yeah she's just a really brilliant lady um I think her dad actually named her Seiko which means uh fire in in Japanese because he kind of wanted her to go on to, to be Olympic champion and I think um yeah she's definitely gone on to to be a testament to that um and yeah it, it feels very fitting that they have kind of addressed the issue put a woman in a position or I think there was a period in time where they were thinking about putting another man to replace him um but I'm sort of very glad they've gone down down the appropriate route where they have a a woman to be able to speak for issues of empowerment kind of make the games like a safe and sort of allowing space for people um what about you Lauren who who's your woman of the week this week 
Yeah, I've been I've been thinking about it as well and trying to think of women who inspire me in sport. And I think we are of the generation, Chloe, in which we were around the age of kind of 10, 11 during the 2012 Olympic Games. Um, and I remember that being like the greatest summer ever. I was just so excited all the time. Every time I like turned the telly on, somebody was on there being amazing. Um, and so as kind of a figurehead for that, I'm going to go for Jessica Ennis-Hill because I think she is just incredible. And I remember being so inspired by her at kind of age... 11-ish and thinking she was just the most amazing woman ever to be competing in all the different kind of parts of the heptathlon as well which was just incredible and she can continues to be a voice to kind of champion women throughout sport as well so she's my woman of the week but also a woman who has continued to inspire me since a very a reasonably young age anyway um but yeah so all great suggestions I think they can definitely go in the in our big kind of collection of women as we're, we're going through the series. I'd, I'd like to make like a book out of it or something. I just thought no. like that'd be really inspiring. Somebody yeah, to like flick exactly. through. Yeah. yeah. Gabby, I think we'd like to start by discussing kind of like your career and how you found that move from Durham, obviously, which we're really glad to have in common with you, um, um, to kind of the bigger platform of sport and broadcasting as well. While I was at Durham and the whole time I was there pretty much from my first term I had contacted um, the head of the station at, um, in Newcastle the radio station which was previously called Metro FM and asked him um, I'd met him in my gap year and he'd said and I told him I wanted to work in broadcasting and he said if you uh, when you come to Durham come and see me and I'll get you some work experience and so I, I went to see him quite early on and by the Christmas of my first year I was being paid to read the news so I so I had a kind of like apprenticeship going on for the whole of my de degree time my three years there so by the end of my time at Durham I'd been doing my own show for about six months uh, which was an evening show and just before I was well it was the springtime really of my final year where I was thinking about what I was doing next and he offered me the breakfast show to start three days after I graduated so I thought well that's you know and it was a decent salary and um, I thought if, if I do like a year or so I, I think I signed a two-year contract but I thought if I do two years and if it doesn't feel like it's kind of going where I want it to go, I could always go and do a law conversion because I did a law degree and, and follow that route. And so um, so actually the transition was very smooth because I'd been working in the place that I was going to anyway. So I knew the people there and, you know, I'd put a lot of hours in, obviously, while I was doing my degree, I was working a few shifts a week um, but to go into full-time work you know was um, obviously going to be the big change having said that my, my summers I'd done a lot of work there as well so I stayed up in the northeast quite often um, and uh, I'd either go into somebody's house that was you know being was empty over the summer or I uh, my boyfriend from Hillbead his family lived in um, just a place a village just outside of Newcastle so I'd go and stay there so I, I had a, a very big kind of bank of experience before I actually started my job properly um, and then once I started my job I was um, doing five days a week doing the breakfast show which was a very early shift obviously but I was able to do bits of telly I got offered things from Time T Times Tees and um, and so I so it was kind of like a real growth period I suppose so um, I was very grateful for that experience that I'd had in those three years and I'm, I'm a big advocate for I think you know we can work and do our degrees you know and we can we can manage you know to try and get experience in places we want to go it depends what kind of degree you're doing if you're doing a really vocational course or you're doing something that you you know you want to go into medicine or something you know it's obviously a lot harder to go and get work experience as a consultant <laughs> or <laughs> to go be you know an astrophysicist but you can you know there are loads of opportunities to to get into the workplace and find the thing that you you think you want to do because you might change your mind you know you might think oh, this is not for me at all so I'm, I'm, I would say, you know, to anybody who's thinking about getting experience alongside their degree, it's a, a great thing to do. Yeah, I think we've definitely found that this this um, year even. Uh, obviously, our degrees have been more allowing or more kind of forgiving um, for us to have this podcast. But yeah, for, for me, for this year, it's been so much about like the extracurricular, so much about mm. what we're giving to the wider community, what the wider community is giving to us, who's coming onto the show, what we're learning every week, kind of the different experiences, the different women who are coming here and, you know, having, having women in sport, having women in STEM come on and talk to us mm. Um, mm. is just giving us such a wealth of knowledge. And yeah, absolutely such a, such a testament to the kind of uh, multifaceted experience <clears throat> that university can provide. Um, yeah, it's something that Durham really champions as well. I think it's one of the reasons that I was so attracted to the university in the first place. I think it 
they want you to become part of a local community not just a university community so I think it, mm. it's a great opportunity to to take advantage of oh yeah definitely I mean you know I was going up to Newcastle um, a few times a week and it, and it actually gave me um, a broader kind of experience because I had all these people I worked with there who knew nothing of my student life you know so so they they were just taking me at face value I was I was Gabby from you know the student who was coming in um, and then when I come back to Durham obviously I was still involved in big aspects of college life and um, doing things for the Union Society I was eventually DP and you know doing things um, I did a drama production went to Edinburgh so I wasn't just kind of having a life outside of Durham and not doing anything in Durham it was really important to me to to take part in as many things as possible I'd finished my own sporting life if you like as a gymnast so I I wasn't really kind of thinking that I'd get involved in a lot of sport per se I mean I was keeping fit and things but I did play a bit of netball but I wasn't um having spent so much time as a gymnast I didn't have that kind of desire to you know to go and play hockey or anything like that because that wasn't my sport you know so I so I kind of used my time uh instead to coach and I did a bit of coaching for the gymnastics club that was at Hillbead which was again they were kids from outside of college obviously they were young kids so again it was a, a town gown kind of relationship thing that I know then and I assume now was always a big um part of the, you know the college and the and the university the wider university wanting to make sure those relationships were you know as as beneficial to both sides I think as possible definitely and it's nice to hear you kind of talk about DST and things that we're also involved in and and know that those things have gone on to inspire great people as well I think that's testament to, to yeah I think the kind of you know the organizational skills and getting things together whether it's organizing a ball or sorting out some other social events all those things play into so many areas of your life you know as you go forwards and they are really great experience and you can you can make of them what you want can't you you know you can be as proactive or as inactive as you decide to be <laughs> but I think um you'll you'll not uh, regret that getting involved in those things definitely perfect so you went into obviously kind of broadcasting and as an angle on that kind of sports broadcasting yeah well to be honest with you actually Lauren it wasn't sports broadcasting you know at the start because um when I went to, to Metro FM, I was doing the radio show. Then I was doing a kind of celebrity strand interview thing for Time to Tease. And, and actually the, ra the sport came by accident because I was always hanging out with the sports team on the radio station because the, the newsroom was a classic kind of one end was news, one end was sport. And I'd always kind of find my way filtering down to the sports team and chatting about football and whatever else was going on. And the head of the station said to me, you're always hanging out with the sports team. So why don't you do interviews on Saturdays for us at St. James's Park for all the home matches for Newcastle United? And they, I think they were kind of easing out the guy who'd done it for years. He was in his 70s and he was kind of like, you know, um, being retired. And they said, you know, we some fresh blood kind of go in there, you know, with your enthusiasm. And, and it was totally out of my comfort zone, you know, and I had done nothing like that before. And so that was my first kind of foray into it. But that was like a Saturday job. I didn't see that as a career. Do you know what I mean? It was just a fun thing because I enjoyed going to the football. I enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed the sport. And then from there, Sky Sports saw me. And that's how I got to go to Sky Sports. But again, I didn't really think that that was a career. Do you know what I mean? It was because I didn't see many women doing what, what I eventually went on to do. So that was for me just a way of getting to London. You know what I mean? I thought, oh, if I take the job with Sky, I get to work in London and then I can do something else. So um, so it wasn't ever a plan, if you like, you know, to work in, in sport. It, it happened like a lot of the best accidents. You know, it kind of came about um, through circumstance, I suppose, and through a genuine passion of mine for sport. Yeah, the very like organic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And you said there about not seeing many other women in roles like yours, which obviously is a kind of being called the female gaze as, as our podcast is. I'd be interested to like know your opinion on, on how you felt about role models and you becoming a role model now to kind of young broadcasters coming up and, and seeing more women in those positions, I guess. Well, I suppose when you start out doing something like that, um, you're just doing what you enjoy and trying to do it to the best of your ability. And then um, I did garner a lot of attention because I was a woman doing that you know that job and especially when I left Sky because I went on to ITV and I started doing really high profile football so I was working on the Champions League and doing FA Cups and things like that and so of course then when I was being interviewed by journalists and you know doing features and things to promote the programs that that was a very big point of difference and they wanted to talk about that 
And then obviously when you look around and you, you know, and I was the first woman to present a football program on terrestrial TV, you know, you are the first at something. And so you can't kind of deny that you have a responsibility then, you know, and, and for me, it was about making sure that once those doors were opened, that there were more women coming through. And so, you know, taking time to try and encourage and be a positive role model by doing the job well as well. You know, I didn't want to do just be there. I wanted to be, you know, the best at what I, what I, I did, not from any kind of point of um, ego. It was more about just going, right, okay, I'm, I'm in this position. I have a responsibility and I want to do it really well. And then for me also, it's not just about in front of the camera. It was very apparent when I was at Sky that there was hardly anybody behind the camera who was female. So we had one female director and that was it across the piece at the start. You know, there were no directors, no producers, no, um, in fact, the women in the kind of office at Sky Sports generally had, their jobs were very much administrative, you know, so there were hardly any editors across any other sports so that's an area that has really changed massively and I think um and purposefully over the last 10 years or so in particular um and obviously then you you know we've now got loads more women doing sport on television um but importantly as I say women in positions of power and authority you know the head of BBC Sport is a woman and she's held that job for nearly 10 years now um so those areas and things like female editors of newspapers and you know online publications they're really important positions as well for, for women to have a stake in you know in what's being broadcast what's being how it's being broadcast and you know all of all of that so so there's been a kind of real um definitely it, it was a turning of a tanker at first you know it's a slow process but eventually um it comes through and, and the opportunities are there are, are plentiful now yeah, and you said about um, the effect of kind of directors and editors and what they the effect they have on what is being put out there, which I think is a big conversation that we've had or started to have in the last few years about the kind of representation of women's sport on television mm -hmm. as well. Um, my sister, who will be thrilled that I'm talking about her in this podcast, um, is a massive, massive netball fan. And she has been waiting for years for the netball to kind of be broadcast. And now in this lockdown pandemic, um, we have suddenly started to see a little bit more on mainstream television or more accessible to, to view women's sport. Um, and I know there have been lots of kind of breakthroughs in recent years. So the boat race, suddenly now we've get, we're getting kind of the women's race on the same day and also on the television. And I know women's football has been a really big kind of question about that. I wondered if you had any kind of opinion on, on how much we should be promoting women's sport to those primetime slots and the ways that we could start to go about having those conversations in a more kind of encouraging way I guess um it's well the thing about women's women's sport has uh, you you mentioned Jessica Ennis Hill earlier on and 2012 was a real turning point in the broadcast of women's sport because at that Olympic Games more women than men won medals for Great Britain so um the 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 figures that year were kind of skewed because of that Olympics in terms of how many women we saw on television doing sport but what was apparent was that people enjoyed you know those those women's performances as much as they enjoyed the men's performances and in olympic games obviously it's a much more um it's a much easier thing to broadcast because those sports are played alongside each other and i do athletics for bbc and that's an, a very easy sport to get balance with because a men's 800 meters race happens and a women's 800 meter race happens two minutes later the men's pole vault happens and the women's jab so you, there's no demarcation you know there's no women's day men's day you know what i mean that's it so athletics is a brilliant sport to have really 50 50 kind of coverage of, of athletes other sports are more difficult because of various historical situations so football for example i was part of the very successful um coverage of the 2019 women's world cup where we got um over 11 million people watching the semi-final for england usa um, that's the highest level of sport you know a world cup semi-final is a huge um a huge level of, of, of success obviously a final would have been amazing and in that stadium that was a packed stadium with over 50,000 people watching that event so people care you know and that's the thing about sport if men's football in ordinary times not covid times had nobody in the stadium watching we wouldn't put that on primetime tv because it you have to you have to care you know the audience has to want to watch something so i'm talking completely non covid times at the moment when i'm talking about crowds so if nobody goes to watch women's football you know it's very hard to convince the audience that this matters so what women have to do what men have to do what we all have to do if we want to see women's sport pushed even higher up into the schedules is make sure people go and participate and support it you know because anything that's a minority sport whether it's men's or women's will not get primetime coverage so if you're talking say for example men's hockey you know 
nobody goes to watch it. It doesn't appear on primetime TV. It doesn't matter that it's male or female. So it's, it's, it's not, and it's also about the numbers that play the game. Now, women's netball is hugely successful in terms of, in the campaigns that they've done the last few years and getting women back playing the sport for health reasons, not for necessarily high performance levels. What women's netball did brilliantly with Sky when they very first went on to Sky and then they put the league on Sky, they did a deal where they actually funded their coverage. So, because it, it wasn't commercially viable for Sky to put it on. So there's a lot more than meets the eye on scheduling. Do you know what I mean? It's not just about going, oh, it's not fair, let's put this on. You know, it has to appeal. And the BBC has a charter, obviously, to, to you know, entertain, educate and inform. And it has a responsibility. And the BBC has put loads of women's sport front and centre. The Women's um, Football World Cup, the Women's Netball World Cup all happened in the same summer. And they were, you know, on really good slots, um, both of those events. Um, but it is it is a journey, you know, to kind of keep pushing those those programs into the schedule. Next season, the BBC will uh, have 18 women's football matches through the season live, which is great. I do the women's FA Cup, and and we get good audiences for that. But we need to keep, you know, kind of these. It has to begin to matter to people enough. That's what that's the that's the crux of this, you know. So women um, women's sport, I've always felt, will only really truly grow and and achieve any kind of parity if men and women care, because you can't just have an audience of women watching women's sport, because you don't just have an audience of men watching men's sport, you know? So, so it has to, people have to care and have to, have to want to kind of be uh, involved in the promotion of that. It's no good just saying it's not fair. That's not gonna, that's not gonna change anything. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So when, when you're kind of handing on to your children that your parents support XYZ football club, you need to tell them, we also support this netball club. And then maybe that's how yeah. we start to regenerate. Yeah, and, and not everybody, you know, netball doesn't appeal to everybody, you know, and so it's great that your sister is so passionate about it, but it doesn't, you know, some people like, you know, my daughter's into equestrian sport. She hardly sees any of her sport on telly. You know, yeah. she has to go onto specialist channels to watch her sport. Um, she she loves show jumping, you know, and so I'll come into my office sometimes where I'm sat now and there'll be a load of videos from YouTube that she's downloaded, uh, downloaded of, of show jumping. When I was a kid, I was a rhythmic gymnast. It was on twice a year if you were lucky, you know, not being on primetime telly should not be a barrier for people to get involved and interested. And especially as the platforms for showing sport now are changing so much. I did um, a boxing match. Um, I did the Anthony Joshua fight um, before Christmas for DAZN and DAZN is a, uh, bundles sport together and does you know it's a way of it's almost like a Netflix of sport now if that's the future of sports broadcasting you know we're going to be able to see netball broadcasting different ways across different platforms and you know you guys consume your tv in very different way to how I would have consumed my tv when I was a student I'm sure you've hardly ever watched terrestrial tv anymore and you watch a lot of youtube you watch a lot of um uh, Netflix whatever you know you you don't you stream stuff you do things in a different way so so it's um, to, to think of it in a very linear, old fashioned way, I think will be missing a trick for women's sport. You know, it has to take the opportunities to to go out there and broadcast in a different way. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think um, in a way, different platforms should be kind of celebrated. We should be celebrating these simultaneously, simultaneous exposures for, for sport. As you said, it's not all terrestrial TV. It's, it's going to be Instagram. It's going to be YouTube. It's mm. going to be everything. And it's we should eliminate the idea that we can only consume something from one platform. What's interesting, though, is if you think about the sports that have um, really if, good parity, if you like. Right. Mm -hmm. So you look at Wimbledon, the men and women perform on the same courts, all the, you know, or you look at the big tennis majors, they're, all, they're on it all the time. The athletics I've mentioned, uh, what, what would be another sport where that happens all the time? Uh, to a certain extent, golf, they play the same courses, they're kind of like, you know, the women's tour happens at the same time. It's football's historical kind of journey, if you like, for women, especially in this country, was so um, stymied by football being banned for women in the 1940s for 40 years that it was playing catch up culturally then, you know, because when people didn't see women playing football and because they didn't see women playing football and because it was banned because it was supposed to be bad for women's health, obviously that was a huge, you know, barrier to kind of success of women's. But you look at other countries where it wasn't banned, Germany, Scandinavian countries, Canada and America are a brilliant example because they kind of started their men's and women's journeys at the same time. So kids in America play together all the way through till they get to like 12, 13, and then they separate into women's and men's teams. And the women's team is way more successful than the men's team. <laughs> so, um, so I think there's, there's, there's cultural and there are historical factors that play into this across um, the world, really, you know, in terms of attitude towards women's sport. It's not a universal issue 
in the same way. Do you know what I mean? Like not everybody's experiences are the same. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and I have kind of good friends in, in the US and they played soccer, as they like to call it, from from a very young age as, as females. And they they had great success in it. And you're right, it is much more championed over there. So maybe it is kind of building from the ground up as such. And yeah, and, and making, you know, our our daughters um, have, like my daughter loved the Women's World Cup. She doesn't play football, but she loved watching the Women's World Cup because as I always say, you know, those, it's important that there are eyeballs on those events because for little girls watching, it's not just about, oh, I want to be, you know, the next um, um, Steph Houghton. I want to be the next, um, you know, Nikita Paris. These are, you know, England stars. It's about, oh, I thought that was for guys. But actually, mm-hmm. if that's not for guys, then what about me being um, an astronaut? What about me designing cars? What about me doing things that I thought were for my brother? And, you know, I'm giving you some kind of very sexist examples, but that that's the kind of breaking down of the barriers that, you know, it's the opportunity and the, the idea that there is nothing that you can't do. You can do whatever you like. And so that's why it's really important that those women are celebrated. Yeah, definitely. I think it's interesting you raise um, about kind of your daughter there as well. And I was listening to your podcast episode with Catelyn Moran the other day. Yeah. Um, and I know you said about the differences because you've got twins, one, yeah. one of whom is a boy and one of whom is a girl and the differences in raising them. I, have you noticed any difference, particularly with like reference to sport and how you've had to kind of prepare them for the world they are entering as, as young sports people possibly or as kind of just young people in general, I guess? Um, well, it's really interesting because you set, I was thinking about this the other day about one Christmas time where I'd bought them both cars. Um, like, you know, those kind of cars that you drive around yeah. uh, with, with your, you pedal with your feet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like they, were, they didn't have an engine or anything. They were about three and they were my husband and my brother, had, my brother was staying and they'd made them all up the night before and left them in their playroom with kind of present because they were too big to wrap. And um, they went in and they were both thrilled with their cars. Um, but he turned his car over and started looking underneath the back of the car <laughs> and she got in the car and went to her dressing up box and got her um, a bag and got some bits for her bag and put it on the car front seat. So she was obviously copying what I do in, you know, when I get in the car, my handbags on the front seat. And so you realize that even their, their kind of experiences were kind of being coming through what they see us doing, you know? And so, so as much as you're trying to kind of present them with the same opportunities and the same, you know, they, they were very much kind of, I suppose, because we're such a 50-50 house in terms of, you know, two men, two women, you know, there's a girl and a boy and a mum and a dad. And they were they're kind of following our um, paths, if you like, in that respect. And so I was always really trying hard not to give them, um, you know, any any reason to think that they couldn't do what they wanted. And funny enough, my daughter is much more into STEM subjects. You know, she's much more scientific and that's the way she's kind of wants to go with her A-level things. So in that respect, I feel quite proud that she's, you know, uh, she's done very different to me as well. You know, as much more humanities. Um, but sports wise, going back to your question, um, they have really interesting attitudes actually to, you know, to their sports and how they compete. But they're both very driven and they're both very hard working so I don't really feel like I I think again they have to kind of follow an example of work ethic and they have to kind of know you know how to behave on the pitch or you know my son plays rugby and how she has to you know kind of control her emotions when she's riding you know that's really important and I think that's such an important lesson anyway to to all of us um so I don't I haven't specifically kind of treated them any different in terms of what they do uh, sporting wise um I just have always encouraged them to move and be active and want them to uh, be fit and healthy and so they found their paths if you like through you know through their own kind of ways I would definitely not you know my daughter's very clever she chose a sport I know nothing about I always joke to Claire Balding that she's her long-lost daughter because I'm like oh well, I don't know I don't know horses what <laughs> um, so she did play all she said played all the team sports at school and everything and she enjoyed that but um but I guess you you can't deny somebody's passion can you what they love no definitely yeah, that's really interesting thank you so now we are being joined by some lovely other Hildbead women um, to talk about sport and, and their experiences of playing university sport in particular. Um, so we have Sophia, who is part of the Ultimate Frisbee team and the cheer team and do Hildbead dance, of course. So yeah, Sophia's here. Hi. Hello. Hello how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. 
Uh, and then we have Becca Jackson, who is part of the infamous Mooses, the uh, women's football team at Hillbead, but also is about to become our next SLC president, which is really exciting as well. So there we go. Congratulations. Hello. <laughs> and then Hi. we have Immy, who is our FemSoc publicity officer, but also plays women's rugby at Hillbead. Hi. Hi. Perfect. Cool. So... Firstly, guys, um, I just wanted to know, how have you found playing sport at uni in general? Um, generally positive. I think um, it's been one of the best things I've done, decided to do. Um, I played football when I was younger, um, but wasn't particularly good. I think college gives like a very, um, it becomes like a level playing field because we have mixed ability. Um, but yeah, it was, it's been great. It's been a barren um, of laughs. <laughs> Same for me. I found it really positive. I've never played rugby before. Um, started playing for Hild, um, Hild Beats team and then started playing for the uni as well. Why did you decide um, to play rugby, Imogen? What was the um, draw? Um, one of my friends was going along to some of the taster sessions in first year and I just basically tagged along with her. So complete just like chance and then ended up really getting on with the girls play? where do you play on the pitch what's your position um so for uni i tend to play uh second row um uh but for college sort of all over the place it's a bit more um we play ten aside uh right. and so it's a bit looser and a bit less defined but it's really good fun um, yeah, I would say my experience playing sport at uni has generally been really positive. Um, my experience as being part of cheer, which is um, an incredibly female dominated um, sport compared to frisbee, which is a mixed sport, but very male dominated, um, have been extremely contrasting, but still both very positive. Um, yeah. And dance, is, sorry, um, is New Society, which we um, founded nearly a year ago. Um, and it's um, predominantly female, um, but we do have a few... Um, guys that do you specialize in um it's for everyone i like it's not very high level it's mainly like commercial um things you'll see like um in troops that's the kind of thing we do um and it's all choreographed by people in the society so um the levels really vary which is good because i think it can provide a challenge or um be very welcoming to people who don't have much experience in dance and i suppose for them it's just really fantastic for their mental health isn't it just dancing you make you yeah. feel so great don't you yeah absolutely um I mean we've only been a society during um this pandemic so we've never had an in-person rehearsal <laughs> it's only ever been on zoom um but even then like just that hour a week um just having a little boogie in front of yeah. the screen is quite nice well, well done for keeping it going and <laughs> thank um, you yeah. and Sophia you mentioned that cheer which brings us neatly on to kind of our first topic which is to do with body image um and Chloe and I when we were prepping the uh, the interview we're looking at kind of a, a scandal that hit Durham Uni last year a little bit. Um, Chloe, do you want to give some context on on what happened? So I tried to find the Palatinate article for this. I actually wasn't able to find it. But from my memory last year, there was a cheer competition. So it was all the collegiate cheer competitions. And one of the teams seemed to lose out because there was something, the panel of judges made some kind of uh, commentary on one of the teams' outfits. I don't know which college it was, but apparently it was deemed as sort of inappropriate or kind of um, scantily clad um, in in some regard, and they seem to miss out on that. So, kind of my question to you guys was, kind of what is what are the expectations of female athletes? Um, how do how do they differ? What kind of standards are we dealing with? Um, how is body image sort of filtered into expectations uh, for female athletes. Sophia, think, you were part of that competition, weren't you? Yeah, um, I'll be honest, I think I was focused so much on how well Hillbead were gonna do that um, I didn't um, take that, fully process that at the time. Um, but that's such a broad question. And I think um, my response to that would be that, um, I remember Julia in one of the first episodes of this podcast saying that um, the male gaze in even female dominated spaces is quite, I want like prominent um and so to focus on um how someone looks when they're playing a sport um I, I really think buys into that um I mean unless the clothing being like ill-fitting or whatever actually affected the performance I like was detrimental to their performance um I think shaming someone for it being ill-fitted um is just so wrong it's um yeah it's not in fitting with I think how sports should be judged um 
And to my recollection as well, um, I think it was the fact that it was ill-fitting that made it potentially like scantily clad, i.e. this uh, clothing was too small for the person, which, yeah, I just, I think that um, she sh they shouldn't have been penalised for it. And it was quite hush-hush, like it was mentioned on the day and everyone was like, oh, that's so bad. But I, I don't know, actually know how it was addressed. I think it... It was blown over. It was blown over. I think there was an official apology issued by by one of the judging panel. I think it was a the only male judge on that panel also who yeah. had made made the comment, which made it yeah. even more unfortunate than it than it was in the first place. And like you said, I think um, the the general feedback from the team. I think it was the Wildcats, which I believe are Hatfield Cuff kind of combined cheer team. Um, and I think their general feedback, I, I know one of their captains, and it was like, well, it didn't take away from what we'd done. We had, it was in no way detrimental to how we had performed on the day. Nobody had been injured or it hadn't kind of actually physically done anything different than what had happened in their routine that was supposed to happen. It was just a comment about the way they looked, which, which felt unfair and, and very unnecessary. Um, like you said, they should have been judged on their sporting performance rather than the way they were dressed as such. Um, so bringing that onto kind of a wider conversation about body image then, um, over the summer there was this scandal with Irish rugby in which they were advertising their new kind of uniforms. And if you clicked on their webpage, if you clicked on the men's uniform or the kit, it was being modelled by their players, um, which everybody kind of is a, is a thing people do to try and get people to buy the kit. You see the people that you admire wearing it, so of course you're going to buy it. But then if you kicked on, clicked on the women's kit, it was being modelled by female models rather than by their players, which seems kind of an unnecessary difference to, to make, I guess. I don't know, Amy, as a rugby player, how did, how did you feel about that? I mean, I remember it being a very big thing across all my social media. Lots of my friends who are involved with rugby were posting photos with this campaign of hashtag I am enough. Um, and it it's I think especially with the rate at which women's rugby is growing in the UK it just seems so at odds with that to then completely ignore the contributions that these female players make to their teams um, and like miss out on that opportunity to encourage women to take up the sport and encourage them to look up to these players um, and yeah, I remember it having quite a big impact. Um, yeah, it seems to negate from their from their abilities as players to not kind of put them on the same pedestal as as the male team, I guess. Um, does any anybody else have any any strong feeling about that kind of scandal in itself or about body image in general in women's sport? Mm, I think um, like one of the huge problems with female with like the fact that females quote female sports aren't as popular um by like to the general public it's because they're just not as well marketed and then um ha not having those female players you know model those things you're getting you're not getting them out there as much like people don't know your female players as well as they know their male players and I think what was it Can uh, Canterbury the, the sponsors yeah. just made a huge huge mistake by um you know not publicizing um female players wearing the clothes you know smiling having a good time showing that like being marketed the same as the male players and instead like having these models stare down a camera just like yeah if it was like a fashion brand or something and I think that them making such a big mistake publicly could have a silver lining in the fact that um well they did apologize for it and they you know said they won't be doing it in future um which leads me personally to believe that like they kind of might have they might have done this because that's what they always do. Like the female clothes get modelled by models and the male um, rugby jerseys always get modelled by the players. And the fact they've apologised for this mistake and um, have said that, you know, they won't allow this to happen again will hopefully make them and other companies that have looked on this mistake and the backlash that it's received. They might like start to question why they're doing it as opposed to just going along with the societal norm of getting the models to mo getting models to wear the female jerseys and males for the males, male players, sorry, um, for the ma male jerseys. Um, hopefully it will encourage Canterbury of New Zealand and other brands to just question why they're doing it. Like, are they doing it for um, the benefit of the players, for the benefit of the public, or are they doing it because that's what's always been done? And if that's what's always been done, 
why, as I said earlier, um, through the male gaze, um, female um, spaces are often, well, females are often just like objects. So they're supposed to look good in these things. Um, whereas actually, I think they should be looking like they're having a good time. Definitely. It's that whole, um, the weird contradiction between them trying to, so if you're selling the male kits because people want to wear the male kit to do the sport, whereas if you're selling the female kits because they're putting it on models to make it something like sexy or something attractive rather than just because women also want to play the sport, which is a, a weird kind of the other thing as well to remember is that marketing departments are often totally disassociated from the actual teams you know so these people sometimes work in isolation if it, if it was indeed Canterbury and not the Irish Rugby Union who did that because actually if you look at the Scottish Rugby Union they did both um, the female and the male players uh, a shot wearing their kit um, and I think um, that's much clever much better marketing you know it's much better for the women's game to, to do that it makes so much more sense and sometimes these mistakes happen because of somebody in a marketing department thinking in a not in, as you said, not in the sporting way. It, they're, they're looking at, oh, how can I make this this kit sell? I know I'll put it on a, a really pretty model and that's how it's going to sell. But not thinking, actually, we want to grow the game. We want more women playing. You know, so there's there's and, and that's what in the marketing world, what's called activation, which basically is it's not just about getting the product off the shelf. It's about growing the sport. And I think uh, they missed a trick. The Irish Rugby Union, you know, by doing that, not only did they create, obviously, the conversation, you know, which looked bad on them, but also there's a chance to celebrate that by celebrating those women players and giving those women a platform and, you know, allowing them to kind of then talk a bit more about their sport. So I don't think it's a mistake that they'll make twice. <laughs> Definitely. And like Amy says, hopefully it's a mistake that they made and, and now we've all kind of responded to in a very positive way, which, which could in fact cause a greater change maybe than not making mistakes. And to be fair, the Irish, those Irish women aren't um, as well known uh, you know, and so therefore they probably didn't realise that there would be actually a kind of an appetite almost to talk to them or whatever. You know, so you look at the the England football team, they'd never put models in the England women's football kit. They'd always use the women because their profile is so high now. And so but but it's a it's a chicken and egg, isn't it? How would you get the profile to be high? Well, you've got to just be a bit brave in the beginning and just, you know, get those women out there talking about their sports. So. Um, hopefully uh, the Irish Rugby Union realises that there is an appetite to hear from those women now. Absolutely. Um, Sophia, you mentioned how this is, you've set up dance very excitingly um, and you haven't had any rehearsals this year because of COVID at the moment. Um, opening it up to, to everyone even, I just wanted to ask, we haven't, sport, we haven't spoken about uh, sport in COVID and what that's like. Obviously sport is such a kind of centerpiece for community in terms of um, caregiving, in terms of mental health, in terms of kind of strengthening each other. Um, and I wanted to ask, how are teams looking to adapt to a lack of training at the moment? How are they adapting to a lack of, of seeing each other? A lot of us are in isolation at home at the moment. How are we kind of changing our platforms or sort of adapting or adjusting to this new normal that we're in now? Um, um, I think it's slightly different with dance to other um, sports that I play at college because dance has always been online and I think that in Covid there is quite a lot of so obviously it'll be on Zoom and we'll have to see each other through or like you know any other virtual platform but Zoom fatigue is a very <coughs> real thing and I know that we've got a lot less retention than we would um, in a normal year like we got loads of signups but then as soon as it came around to as soon as it comes around every week to sitting on a Zoom call for another hour of your life um people aren't so keen so yeah going back like to the main bit of your question is how are societies in general adapting I think it's mainly trying well from my point of view uh trying to keep attention to the society and keeping motivation for when things do open back up like especially with team sports such as frisbee that isn't a lot you can do except be like I hope you're all doing okay you know we're still here for you if you need us um please keep doing your own thing whatever you're doing you know anything is better than nothing if you go for one run in this whole lockdown period good on you um we'll still be here waiting for you um when you get back that's how, like the kind of approach which we've um taken yeah yeah we've I think with rugby we've done a few like with the college rugby team there have been a few nice we've been setting little challenges and stuff so sometimes it's like a skills-based thing to do with rugby so like 
throwing and catching some random object or doing a bear crawl in a funny situation or whatever uh, or baking something rugby related I think just to try and keep there's some keep something going on the group chat keep us talking to each other and either doing something physical or just doing something which you can then feed back into the group and and keep a little bit of that community going especially in what such do you like... think Imogen about the women's six nations being moved to April do you think that's an opportunity or is it for you um, a kind of retrograde step I'm not really sure to be honest well, uh, I, I felt think... like when I first heard I, I felt it was actually an opportunity for the women's six nations to have its own platform because I often yeah. think during the six nations it gets kind of, you know, it doesn't get as good as slots, obviously. It gets airtime, but yeah. it, it feels like there's a lot of rugby on on those weekends. Do you know what I mean? And so yeah. are you going to attract the people who watch the men's game yeah. as well? Or are you going to just attract people who are already interested in the women's game? Whereas I wonder if in April you'll just attract rugby fans across the board as opposed to, you know. Yeah, I think. I think that could be the case. Like I remember in first year, they used to show the men's rugby uh, in the college bar, but we asked if they could put on the women's and because it was on different channels, they can't do that. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's another problem of like accessibility to it. Um, and I think, yeah, that that is potentially the case. Like maybe we'll get people who wouldn't normally watch it, just keen to watch some rugby, especially mm. when there hasn't, been that much of it on this year or as much as normal mm. so maybe it will get people interested um but i but again i think it's like until it it gets those opportunity the same opportunities as the men and the same publicities as the men's that by itself might not be enough to draw people in unless they start actually throwing some uh some concentrated publicity behind it and trying to get people interested in it might be easier too. to publicize it away yeah. from the noise of the men's you know we'll see amazing so i'm conscious that gabby you have to kind of shoot off in in a second so i was wondering before you leave if we could ask one more question of you and that is what would be the one piece of advice you'd give to your university self as we are kind of all in that stage at the, at the moment what would you tell yourself now in retrospect do you know, I, I don't think there's a lot that I would change. I mentioned um, before um, uh, Sophia and Imogen and Becca joined, um, I was talking about my time at Durham balancing my job. I worked for Metro FM wow. and doing my degree and getting involved in college life. And, and I just never regretted getting involved in as many things as possible, I think, is probably, you know, just to keep doing as much as you can. And all those experiences are so enriching and such a wonderful period of your life to be able to do those things. Because when you eventually leave and and go into a profession or go into the, you know, the world of work, whatever that is, you, you know, time just isn't there in the same way. And so, you know, you find that you don't have the opportunity to do all those different things and the interest in that you nurture and cultivate now, hopefully you'll, you'll be able to carry on. So I think just uh, to, to get involved in as many things as possible and take the opportunities that are presented towards you um, and, you know, just say yes to those things, I think, because um, when you step outside of that, that bubble if you like of your university life you know um saying yes becomes a little bit um a bit more scary sometimes you know and I think there's a really nice community that you have a kind of ready-made community that will support you so um leave with as many experiences as you can that's great advice I I'm I feel like we all as people in the school knowing people in the school I think it's stuff that we all already do but stuff that to keep you, in mind yeah, always which and is... kind of speaking to the converted aren't I really because you're all joiners <laughs> in I can tell that so but maybe our responsibility as people who do that is to try and bring in other people who don't and to try and encourage them you know for whatever reason that they are a bit more reticent so um and it's you know it's finding the path isn't it and feeling confident about that and that's that's what university should be about I think it's not just about the, the things that we learn cerebrally it's about what we learn of, of, of ourselves as people so um yeah I think I was I was writing about this the other day because I've been trying to write a book in lockdown and um I realized um that when I graduated I I hardly I probably had like two or three nights a term where I actually drank I wasn't really a drinker and I thought I actually wrote maybe I should have got drunk more when I was <laughs> 
<laughs> a student, but maybe not. Maybe that's, I just wasn't like, my kids go, well, I said, yeah, but I made up for it afterwards. But I just, I was so busy when I was at Durham and there was so much going on. I didn't really have time for rotten hangovers. And whenever I had them, I thought, oh, that was a waste of time. So, which is not the most popular thing for a student or ex-student to say, but um, yeah, <laughs> maybe I should have had a few more hangovers. <laughs> there you go. That's a lovely final inspiration to <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. It's Take been care. Thanks. Pleasure. Thanks so much. You great Thank women. You. Lovely to meet you all. Thank you Thank so much. You. Bye. Bye. Do you want to come back to the COVID question? Um, I was a bit embarrassed because we've literally we can't because of football. Obviously, it's um, very much. Not, I wouldn't say it's a contact sport, but it's not not a contact sport. <laughs> it depends on what kind of player you are. Um, and uh, yeah, we've had a social or two, um, but it's been, I think everyone can attest to this, getting engagement this year has been like drawing blood out of a storm kind of. I understand um, um, our team is very luckily and also sadly um, for next year is a very finalist strong. Um, so we have the regular team, the vast majority of uh, third years, um, which is lovely as a friend and building bonds and that sort of thing. Um, but is um, kind of sad when there's not going to, maybe won't be as much take up next year. Like um, like Sophia said, we've had a lot of signups. Um, but then when I've organized a social, it's been mostly the executive have turned up. Um, so, yeah. And I think also like uh, it's a knock on effect is that, um, well, I mean, we had like one or two socials in fairness i'm doing my dissertation <laughs> but, uh, i think um yeah people are reluctant to just join like you said another zoom call yeah that's probably been a bit of a challenge Definitely. i mean sophia obviously like you more than anybody i think speaking to kind of the experience i had of, of frapping underneath your kind of leadership as, as a head frap you've kind of had to overcome let's say the challenges of covid in in a way that i thought was kind of spectacular considering the continuous kind of introduction of new rules and, and new challenges how did you find leading that sort of major team in in such a difficult time quite frankly exhausting like I gen did experience major burnout after that week like with new rules coming in um every other week like and there was like a, a period, like a three day period at the beginning of uh, the week before Freshers Week where new rules were getting introduced every day. So we had to change our plan daily. And there was Josh, the co-head prep and I like pulling 12 or 14 hour days throughout uh, prep week before the Freshers even arrived. Um, and then having to be uh, in college during Freshers Week just to make sure that everything was running OK. Um, it was exhausting. And I think just dealing with a pandemic uh, in general is exhausting, even if you're not organising freshers week and I think that probably um explains why freshers I mean it's hard to just join a society any year like putting yourself out there and then it must be exhausting for the freshers having to come um not have the experience which you know they've kind of bought into which everyone tells you you're going to have in the lead up to university and you know they're putting in effort to make sure that they're you know having a good time in every other aspect joining a society must just seem like uh, yeah it's just more effort on top of living in a pandemic but I hope that like um even though for example the football team is mainly finalists when things open back up it will seem like less effort and less scary to put yourselves in front of people because you'll be in front of them in person rather than via a screen where you get all the weird like oh am I talking now or are you oh, you know what I mean <laughs> so I hope that all the effort being put in by second, third, fourth years now into these societies um, will pay off um, next year because these societies will be more developed and so hopefully easier for them to come in. Sorry, I know I went off topic there. No, no, but, no, um, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think they're all really important things to be said. And I think testament to Hillbead as a college that one, we like you and Josh, but as a group we managed to stand there and be like we still want to give you something we still feel strongly enough about this place that we want to give you something and also testament to all the growth of Hillbead like we've done the podcast you've done dance society I know there are other new societies that have been uh literary society obviously Becca you set up lit society um and like testament to how much we all jointly love this place and I think we kind of got that vibe from from Gabby as well that we we want to continue to put ourselves out there 
and say this is what Hillbead is and we want you to feel part of it and one day when we get the chance to welcome you properly in a more normal situation we want you to still feel like you had that experience and that you are part of our community because that is what I know from my first year and, and continuing into my second year it's the one thing that I'm more grateful than anything else that Durham has given me is this this sense of being in Hillbead that I don't think you can replicate in many other places in the country I think it's a very special thing that we've we've all got and a very special resource as well I was gonna say yeah I think although at the moment I, I as, as Sophia was saying it there is this kind of burnout that freshers are experiencing and there's a, there is this kind of dislocation completely from the university experience that everyone has built up I think it is like our year and our responsibility to have like to have this love for for Hillbead and want people to have what we had like as a college parent as like as heads of societies just as just as members of the college I just want people to have a good time you just want them to have what you had so they can do the same to the year after them and after them and to have that like knock-on effect to the point where we'll be someone else will be you know interviewing us in, in 10 years time and then being like what was your experience like at Hillbead um and just for for the whole thing to happen tenfold. I also think what you're saying Chloe about um getting people involved in the community that we have ties really well into like females in sports because in my experience anyway and I know speaking to other girls uh, like other my friends and um, they've also had this experience university can sometimes be the first time where you put yourself out there to try these sports because for me um I don't really do sports in secondary school because this is an awful thing to say now but I will explain it you know um, I just felt like they were very bitchy I felt like there was a lot of judgment there was a lot of like pressure on how you looked and to be fair you can see why because every single media outlet you consume you know by the age of 11 or 12 is through the male gaze and ob objectifies women and says that looks are the most important thing ever so as an 11 or 12 year old who hasn't had the chance to like challenge your unconscious biases and internalize misogyny you just go along with it you believe it and then you have people on, the, on those teams being like oh, did you see the pe the way they looked? Or like, that seems to matter more than performance. So I felt a lot of pressure in secondary school, like as not being one of like, or someone who looked like someone off a magazine, um, that sports weren't really for me because if I looked bad, I don't know, that would just be the end of the world. Um, but then you grow up and you, I think for me, as well as a lot of my friends, um, the fear of missing out on the opportunities to play sports grows larger, larger than your fear of, looking bad playing the sports mm -hmm. and it's it's so difficult to then reintroduce yourself into a team or whatever that you previously um have had negative connotations with and university really gives you that fresh start um to get involved with those societies um with other people who are hopefully um well in my experience I've always been open-minded um and I think giving uh you know um anyone who identifies as a woman in like who is a freshman now or who will be next year the opportunity to take part in sport and like challenge themselves to make the big step to um choose to take up the opportunity instead of being scared of how they look in the sport um is I mean it was crucial to me so I think it'd be crucial to them as well um yeah yeah I would say like I think that's another thing that I that made that whole rugby the Irish kit thing so annoying because it just reinforced that idea that you have to be looking pretty or looking a certain way Absolutely. to be playing a sport and especially with rugby like you don't care what you look like when you're tackling someone you're going to be covered in mud half the time like you're not it's so not about that that the directing attention to looks just seems so out of place and I think also I found rugby like very body positive I've I've found that like there's a place for everyone like whatever your size or shape like there'll be something that you can do that another person can't do if you're strong or if you're quick like there's a place for everyone within it and and I found it so, so non-judgmental I think especially because lots of people come to it new at university lots of girls have never played it before um and it is this really nice like inclusive community so when the external perceptions of it project all this sexism onto it and stuff then it it can feel very jarring I think with the experience of of playing that sport as well 
I think that perfectly highlights the difference the male and female gaze has when looking at um, women's rugby. Like, and as we were speaking about earlier, like the Irish rugby scandal, um, Canterbury making a huge mistake. I feel like the silver lining to that can be that um, society who may have looked at that and been like, oh, I don't really see the problem with it being models rather than players will well they came under huge scrutiny and that was from people looking through the female gaze instead and um it just like expresses the ideas and views of feminists to people that may not have thought about those things like talking in this podcast about feminism um is incredible because you're speaking to like-minded passionate people but it's obviously an echo chamber whereas like canterbury making such a huge mistake and being shot down for it um, means that the views of yeah feminists and people who want equality um, are getting out there to um, company companies like that particular marketing manager that made the mistake um, and letting them know what we think to be right well what is right <laughs> yeah I think there's um I think Laura Mulvey coined the term the male gaze and it's about like film theory and it's like a a weird sort of trickle down effect now that like you said it's a, a like kind of a seminal moment where it's become like an industrial thing where um so the general public who obviously um that kind of theory it's like the male gaze or what, what do you mean <laughs> if you're not if you're not looking for it then you're not gonna come into contact with it but yeah i think it definitely exposed the conversation it's a valuable experience in and of itself also i was gonna say um i can remember a horrible experience once buying um uh, ASOS came out with like oh women's football um collection I was like yes god yes I was so excited um and um uh, me being the casual shopper that I am I bought a pair of navy shorts for the mooses and I thought oh you know this is brilliant we've got the pictures up coming and I put them on and they were genuinely they were my size they fit but they were hot pants and <laughs> I was like I can't wear this in the sport I, th- this would be ridiculous I was like I there's there's no way and I like was running around and it genuinely just it was kind of like a a confirmation um and it just reiterated to me oh hold on this these weren't made for me like these weren't made for a player this was made as for an object this was for a spectator um when we've had we've had previously like the co- i think the college system in general is very supportive of women's football i think the mooses is kind of like um i'm not gonna say an institution i can't think of the better word but um it's definitely like it's got its place in college enough people respect you know in like we won team of the year in 2019 Woo-hoo um uh so yeah and um i think it's like decently well known we have a presence um and, like simon's come to our matches and you know we get like our victories are sort of celebrated on like the team hill bead pages um but they, and therefore there's like a weird structural versus individual divide where um I, I don't know if you guys remember but last year there was a petition going around um, they renamed one of the pitches, or they, I can't remember if it was named before or whatever. Um, when the grass um, pitch is used, fixtures get cancelled a lot when the weather is terrible. And obviously, Durham, the weather is <laughs> it's not conducive to great Always football. terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so uh, they, it was named um, MC Grass Pitch Women's Football 1, something like that. Um, something really ob- obscure. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so that meant that women's, fixtures were getting cancelled disproportionately um and even du women's and so for hillbead example there's eight boys teams one women's team the eight teams of boys had much more training than the first for girls who we were in the front cup they weren't um so even like even if the quality of course there's a, a whole thing of like well women haven't played football that long and all that jazz i'm not going to get into that um but even then there was a a destabilizing of the sport from the university level um and i don't think anyone you know assu- like assumed there would be backlash there was like a, uh, over 100 signatures on the petition um mm-hmm. so yeah it's it's kind of i think there's a, a weird divide in college like it's kind of like oh you know it's nice it's we like the mooses and then from the university there was like an, a genuine pra- like pragmatic issue um which i'm not sure if it's been addressed but like obviously that kind of halts the progress of women's football yeah. in the university and it's sad We've- We've had similar things with rugby as well. Like we've had difficulty booking pitches for trainings where the men's team have had no problems and immediately been able to book. But we've sent, like I know that our captain has sent multiple emails and has been waiting on a reply and stuff. And so, uh, yeah, I just to add to that, that we, we've had the same problems and I think it's, there's definitely a, a 
a broader attitude that needs to change within the university as a whole if because if we can't facilitate training and stuff then how are we meant to get to that same level um yeah yeah I think that's a really useful thing to raise in that there's a I think our conversation with Gabby earlier raised this as well is that there's a wider mountain to climb um that we need to continue to challenge and continue to be the people to voice that women's sport is is as worthy and as we continue to voice that then more kind of spectators and and privileges will be afforded to it which is is a really important thing to continue to champion and I'm just going to pick up as we kind of draw to a close I really enjoyed this idea of kind of uh the way we look is is irrelevant because we're playing sport or we're being happy and again my my own personal one of my own personal heroes who I know I've spoken about on on previous episodes Amy Poehler and I just remember this quote uh, where she says there's power in looking silly and not caring that you do um, and I think that's kind of the, the theme for what we've spoken about here is, is going out and, and enjoying yourself and doing things that make you happy. And I hope we as kind of women, hillbead women who are current students, and I know lots of people listening will know at least one or two or all of us here today. And I hope that we stand as testament to kind of coming to university and doing things that you enjoy for the sake of doing them, because why the hell not? Um, and yeah, if you are a fresher listening or an incoming fresher listening, then please, when things do start to sort themselves out, give everything a go, because I think that's the power of university is, is trying as many things as possible and just having a really good time doing them um, and meeting some awesome people through that. So, yeah, thank you all so much for joining. Um, thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. As Gabby said, just say yes. Just say yes and have more hangovers. <laughs> You're gonna have to tell me twice. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, I've been Lauren. I've been Chloe. And we've been the female gaze. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you guys. See you next week. Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.